Welcome back to America's Constitution. It's hard to believe, but we're already at our 10th episode. Double digits here. Welcome back, Akil. Next up, 100. I'm, I'm, I'm into um, exponents. <laughs> you know, we've been uh, doing some readings from, from the new book, and really this is part of a, of a process that I've been privileged to observe in, in watching this, uh, this new book unfold, The Words That Made Us, that's going to be released in May. And, uh, you know, now what's happening in the sort of pre-publication period, um, of course, you, our listeners, are getting... Uh, you know, this unique preview, but uh, so are uh, a few choice reviewers uh, getting previews of the, of the written book, and uh, we're starting to hear from them. So uh, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus have uh, weighed in, and both of them have uh, provided starred reviews to the words that made us, and that's, uh, that's unusual. Um, my understanding is that only a small percentage of books get reviewed at all, um, by these uh, these review compendiums, and uh, uh, far, far, far fewer uh, get starred reviews, and then for both of them to get that is is quite unusual. So, uh, and of course, I'm not surprised uh, having having read the uh, having read the book. So, congratulations on the early reception, Akil. Thanks, and Andy. Truthfully, you walked me uh, through the whole thing. Uh, it's way better book because you pushed back early um, and often, and all sorts of genuinely helpful ways and yeah it's true that um, I've never actually had um, a book that got double stars um, and and most uh, uh, books uh, don't and and this is just a a world that I didn't know 25 years ago before I started trying to started trying to write books for a general audience but uh, PW as it's called Publishers Weekly and Kirkus are kind of the Coke and Pepsi uh, respectively, of the industry. And, and the signals that they send uh, to newspapers determine um, review attention, to uh, uh, book buyers for various bookstores determine um, initial book orders and, uh, and, and book placement. Um, it, there used to be these things called bookstores and it actually mattered where the book was placed and how the book was placed, spine in or, or cover out. Uh, and so... Um, and truthfully, it's not just that the, the Kirkus and, and Publishers Weekly uh, were pretty, uh, were, were positive, but they were positive in just the ways that I hoped they would. They, they liked what I liked about the book. And just so your, our audience doesn't think this is just, you know, all about just pushing um, the book. Let me just tell you my history with Kirkus in particular, because it's, it's, it's a little checkered. So I wrote a book on the Bill of Rights in 1998. Oh, and I was so proud of it, and actually won awards. It's a serious book, the Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. Um, Kirkus did not give it a starred review. They didn't even give it a particularly favorable review. They said some nice things about it, but often these reviews, there's a, a, a first line that, that's often quoted um, by... Uh, in marketing material, and the last sentence that sort of summarizes the, the, the basic verdict. So 1998, right, this book is my first real important um, book uh, uh, called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. Uh, it uh, um, is published two days before my 40th birthday, and that was not a coincidence. So, so I think, okay, this is, this is it. Th at, at that point, this is my magnum opus. Here's Kirkus, quote, 
impressive legal hair splitting that may strike general readers as pointless, unquote. <laughs> okay, so, so, and now, you see, these guys are giving me a starred review. Okay, so then I write this other book seven years later. It's called America's Constitution, a biography, and this podcast is a sort of a pun on that, um, America's Constitution. And, oh, I put my heart and soul into the book, and, and a lot of people liked it, um, and it's done, so it's done well commercially, it's done well critically. Publishers Weekly gave it a star, and indeed a boxed and starred review, which is like the best you can... Um, get. Um, it's 2005. And um, so Publishers Weekly loved it, Coke loved it, but, but Pepsi, Kirkus, they had a different view. It was a generally positive review. It wasn't a star, but a generally positive review. But here's their last, um, uh, their, their verdict. Data rich, but seldom ponderous, unquote. <laughs> so I've gone from being pointless to being, you know, ponderous, but only Seldom ponderous, okay? You know, it's on his, his, my tombstone. He was seldom ponderous, okay? So, so, and I can laugh at that now. And th because truthfully, I do think, thanks to you more than any other single person, this book is data rich, but it actually, one hopes, isn't particularly ponderous. It tries to be readable because I was writing for you, and you're a really smart generalist. You're not a fellow law professor, even though you sometimes play one on radio. <laughs> Indeed. And I, I, you know, I think that I'm more or less a stand-in for the audience in some ways. So, you know, I push back on questions that I think a general audience might, uh, you know, be curious about. Um, and so I, I also have found it very interesting to watch the whole process unfold as the, the book was written, now as it's being you know, being published and so forth. And so we thought it would be good to sort of clue, it, clue the audience in, too, on these steps as they, as they go along. So it's not just uh, shameless chilling for the book. It's also, you know, education on the process of, of uh, writing, publishing, and reception. And it is shameless chilling, too. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> and speaking of which, um, America's Constitution is brought to you today by Everscholar. We'll be talking to you about Everscholar as, as we go on further. And now to the reading. So this is the third in a series of readings about the early presidents. Who did well? George Washington, unanimously selected, unanimously reelected. Who crashed and burned? John Adams, thrown out of office because he criminalized criticism of John Adams, and you can't do that and be a great president. Really, the only early president to be tossed out on his ear, um, except for another one named John Adams, John Quincy Adams. So those are the only two one-termers all the way through Andy Jackson. Um, so we first um, talked about Washington. The second was about John Adams. This one's going to be about Thomas Jefferson. Oh, and then the next one will be about the aforementioned uh, Andrew Jackson. This is Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson called his election to the presidency a revolution, but it wasn't truly. Similarly, Adams called mere opposition to his policies sedition, but this too was a gross misnomer. That said, the election of 1800 did confirm certain basic constitutional truths and prompt important constitutional adjustments. Most important of all, Jefferson's triumph he won 73 electoral votes to Adams' 65, and his allies won the lion's share 
of the House and Senate seats at issue meant that the Sedition Act was now dead and buried. The people themselves had, in effect, overruled the circuit judges. Once in office, Jefferson worked to implement that informal electoral verdict. First, Jefferson and his fellow Democratic Republicans, who by the end of 1801 comfortably controlled the House and had roughly half the Senate, eschewed passing a new Sedition Act to replace the one that had just poofed into thin air. Rejecting tit for tat, they took no federal statutory steps to target their critics as their critics had once targeted them. Second, Jefferson never tried to pursue anyone for sedition based on any sort of federal common law theory. In later years, a Supreme Court dominated by men that he and Madison had selected and presided over by an Adams appointee, John Marshall, would emphatically declare that the Constitution did not contemplate federal common law crimes of any sort. No justice openly dissented from this landmark ruling, United States v. Hudson and Goodwin, penned by Jefferson's first appointee, William Johnson. Johnson opened his opinion by proclaiming that the issue, quote, had been long since settled in public opinion. In no other case for many years has this jurisdiction been openly asserted, and the general acquiescence of legal men shows the prevalence of opinion in favor, unquote, of Jefferson on this issue. Third, President Jefferson took no steps to prosecute anyone for any writings or utterances that had occurred late in the Adams administration when the Sedition Act was technically still in force. The last section of that statute ended with a special proviso authorizing post-inauguration prosecutions of pre-inauguration crimes. Of course, had Jefferson accepted this proviso's invitation, he would have placed his, his administration in the awkward position of prosecuting his own supporters. More awkward still, he himself had likely violated the Sedition Act while serving as Vice President of the United States. After all, he had secretly funded J James Callender's pamphlet and approved it pre-publication. That alone probably made him an accomplice under the Sedition Act. If Callender himself could be published under the law, as Justice Chase had ruled on circuit, why wasn't Jefferson himself equally guilty? Jefferson's involvement, by the way, with Callender did not become public until 1802, when the colorful journalist outed him. And of course, Jefferson had secretly drafted the Kentucky Resolutions, a fact not made public until the 18-teens, and had traded all sorts of related letters and other writings in connection with these resolutions, which had denounced the government, the Congress, and the President for the Sedition Act. These actions alone were arguably enough to convict under the Sedition Act's words and glossing case law, the lion Cooper and Calendar cases, most obviously, and we discussed those, of course, in the last podcast. But to repeat, no one was prosecuted under the Sedition Act on Jefferson's watch, and rightly so, given the true meaning of the Constitution as confirmed by the election of 1800. Only days after Jefferson took office, his attorney general, Levi Lincoln, informed a lower-level federal prosecutor that, quote, the President of the United States has judged it inexpedient that any further prosecutions should be commenced 
or continued under the sedition law. You will therefore take proper measures for staying and discharging all such cases. Unquote. Fourth, and most dramatically, in his first weeks in office, Jefferson pardoned those still imprisoned under the Sedition Act and forgave their unpaid fines. Over the next several months, he also personally ordered the relevant prosecutor to drop a pending Sedition Act case that he had inherited from the Adams administration against William Duane, the printing partner of the now-dead Benjamin Franklin Bache. Uh, by the way, the Franklin, Bache, and Duane families would become tightly intertwined. In 1800, Duane married Bache's widow, Margaret. Five years later, Duane's son, William John, married Bache's sister and Benjamin Franklin's granddaughter, Deborah. Jefferson expressly defended his actions on constitutional grounds. One particularly emphatic statement appeared in the first draft of his first annual message to Congress. Quote, I do declare that I hold that act to be in palpable and unqualified contradiction to the Constitution. Consider, considering it then as a nullity, I have relieved from oppression under it those of my fellow citizens who were within the reach of the functions confided to me. Unquote. Jefferson eventually dropped this passage at the urging of cabinet advisors, but he had already said much the same thing over many months in letters to sundry correspondents. In a truly extraordinary and tart letter to Abigail Adams herself in 1804, Jefferson minced no words. This is a long quote. I discharged every person under punishment or prosecution under the sedition law because I considered and now consider that law to be a nullity as absolute and as palpable as if Congress had ordered us to fall down and worship a golden image, and that it was as much my duty to arrest its execution in every stage as it would have been to have rescued from the fiery furnace those who should have been cast into it for refusing to worship their image. It was accordingly done in every instance without asking what the offenders had done or against whom they had offended, but whether the pains they were suffering were inflicted under the pretended sedition law, unquote. Later, Congress would make further amends and would do so symbolically on the 14th anniversary of Jefferson's death. The act of July 4th, 1840, repaid Matthew Lyons's fines with, acute, with accrued interest. An accompanying committee report declared that the 1798 Sedition Act was, quote, unconstitutional, null, and void. No question connected with the liberty of the press was ever more generally understood or so conclusively settled by the concurring opinions of all the parties after the heated political contests of the day had passed away, unquote. So, um, a lot of interesting questions raised here. Uh, in terms of the, the last part, um, so this doesn't, I mean, so you've got the um, executive branch weighing in on the constitutionality, yep. and you've got the legislative branch weighing in, but not quite the judicial branch. 
which we talked about yes. earlier, judges don't like admitting that judges have made a mistake, especially, and they especially don't like admitting them, uh, admitting that when judges have made a mistake. Uh, so the Supreme Court doesn't weigh in echoing just these passages that uh, I've recounted for our audience. The Supreme Court doesn't emphatically weigh in until the 1960s, as you and I discussed in our last podcast, in a landmark case, Warren Court opinion, New York Times versus Sullivan. And it's not until New York Times versus Sullivan that the Supreme Court, in a majority opinion, says emphatically the Sedition Act was clearly unconstitutional. Congress has said this in 1840. Jefferson has said this in the, proce in the process of running, in effect, for the presidency, but he has to say it quietly um, because he doesn't want to be prosecuted under it. But once he's president, he says it pretty emphatically in all sorts of letters to correspondents. His attorney general says so. He was going to say so in an inaugural address to Congress, but, but he cut that out at the um, recommendation of his cabinet officers. And oh, he says it about as directly as it's possible to say to none other than Abigail Adams. He says, as you just heard, it's like a statute requiring people to worship a golden calf. That's a biblical reference, of course. And, and so it's, it's just null and void, and it's nothing personal. And here's what you're getting at, which is de, um, what in the lingo, con law lingo is called departmentalism. Enforcing the Constitution is not only for the judges. And indeed, you, you can't always trust the judges. The judges are the last to get on board. The people themselves, a couple of states, first say this is unconstitutional, Virginia and Kentucky. The citizenry, in effect, says it's unconstitutional when they vote for Jefferson. And you asked me in our last podcast, was that an important issue in the 1800 campaign, the Sedition Act? And I say, yeah, it was. So Virginia and Kentucky weigh in. They're the state legislatures. The people weigh in. And now the president of the United States is saying, I think it's unconstitutional. And then Congress, in, by uh, July 1840 says, we agree the judges were the last ones to get on board. If you're a departmentalist, you think all the branches of government should be enforcing the Constitution. And sometimes, and this is one of those times where um, uh, the other branches are more protective of liberty and and this was connected to what we talked about in our last episode about federal common law of crimes. In general, the system is designed, at least criminal law, where you, uh, a citizen will benefit from whichever branch of government is more libertarian, um, has the, the broader view of a constitutional right. If it's Congress, there's no federal statute at all. They just don't pass it, and the baseline uh, uh, is zero federal criminal liability, no federal common law of crimes. If it's the president, he doesn't prosecute, um, or he pardons. Um, if, and, or early in the process, he, he vetoes the bill if it, if it crosses his desk. In the judiciary, as we talked about, if either the judge or the jury um, sides with the defendant, the defendant walks. So that's how the system is supposed to work. It's departmentalist, and you're seeing um, departmentalism not merely done by Jefferson, but defended as such self-consciously in that letter to Abigail Adams when he actually explains the president gets to do things like this. Now, does departmentalism cross over at all? So in other words, if there were a case before the Supreme Court, like you said, they quote uh, in New York Times versus Sullivan, they quote these, you know, these exact quotes. 
But on the other hand, there were things that happened between the Sedition Act and New York Times versus Sullivan, like Eugene Debs and so forth. Um, and now, do these things serve as precedential um, when the court might consider it? So, for example, if Debs were to sue saying, I had a right to, uh, you know, to or contest his conviction saying, I had a right to say these things, um, and, you know, there's this precedent from the Sedition Act, the court hasn't ruled on it, but Congress and, and the president and the executive have, um, what would happen in that case? The fact that the court hadn't ruled yet, uh, would that have any, any uh, relevance here? Well, let's take Debs. Um, and you and I jokingly talk about how we're such, you know, total Yaleys, but a lot of people think Oliver Wendell Holmes is some great champion of free speech, and I have never bought that line. And almost everyone who goes to the Harvard Law School is fed this line, and it's baloney. And that's left, right, and center. Elena Kagan says you know, things about the great Oliver Wendell Holmes. And um, so Oliver Wendell Holmes and eight other justices unanimously put Eugene Victor Debs in prison for 10 years. That his case reaches the U.S. Supreme Court. The president is a thin-skinned Princeton guy named Woodrow Wilson. We jokingly talked about this in our last episode. And he is prosecuting Debs for basically giving an anti-war speech. Debs has a different view of public policy than, than the great Woodrow Wilson, who is every bit as thin-skinned as John Adams. And Wilson prosecutes Debs, and Debs tries to raise the Constitution as a shield in his defense, the same way that Callender tried to, and Cooper tried to, and Lyon tried to, and had no more success with the judges, Debs had no more success, than um, in 1799 and 1800, um, our last episode. And um, here's the difference. He loses, Debs does, in lower federal court, um, and he's, he, um, but he's able to take an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which couldn't happen in the founding era. And the Supreme Court unanimously upholds his conviction, the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, so who supposedly this great free speech champion. I don't buy it. Um, and Eugene Victor Debs, just in case our audience doesn't know, gets a million votes for president. He's a leading presidential uh, politician. He's on the socialist uh, um, a ticket. He gets a million votes, I think, twice or close to a million votes, the second time, I think, from prison. Um, and... What happens to Debs? Does he serve his 10 years? No. Why not? Because after the great Supreme Court has ruled, the great and powerful Oz has ruled against Debs unanimously, it's a president of the United States in the Jeffersonian departmentalist tradition that pardons Debs and releases him from prison. And that president wasn't present, was not a president of my party. You know, Woodrow Wilson's the guy from my party. That president, believe it or not, was Warren Harding, a Republican, but a press man. Warren Harding was a newspaper man, and he pardons Debs on First Amendment grounds in the Jeffersonian tradition on the merits and the Jeffersonian tradition on departmentalism because um, uh, he thinks he's entitled to have, in effect, a broader view of liberty. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Harding 
was, you know, a mediocre president in, in various ways, does one other great thing. Um, and the other great thing that Harding does is he puts on the Supreme Court as chief justice a Yale man who is a more serious constitutionalist, William Howard Taft, former president, and later in our podcast, we're going to get my dear friend, Jeff Rosen, head of the National Constitution Center, who wrote a landmark recent biography of William Howard Taft uh, that highlights Taft as a constitutionalist. We're going to get Jeff as a guest on this podcast. We've already promised our audience that uh, Jeff's brother-in-law, Neil Katyal, will be a guest on this podcast. So we're going to get Jeff to talk about William Howard Taft as a constitutionalist, because um, he was, and in this departmentalist tradition, and I can't just resist, because I am shilling, telling our audience one more thing, which is Jeff actually read the new book, and he liked it, and he, and he blurbed it, and, and, and Jeff would have said something nice about it, even if he didn't like it, but, but he actually you know, told me that he, he, this time he actually believed what he, what he, what he said. And, and that means a lot to me because I hold him in the highest regard. And he's taught me a lot, Jeff Rosen has, the president of the National Constitution Center, about Taft as a constitutionalist. And to repeat, Harding makes Taft chief justice, one of Harding's best um, moments. And Harding also publishes, uh, um, pardons Debs in a departmentalist tradition, also great. And, and since I dumped so much on John Adams last time around, I'll say one thing in Adams' uh, behalf that I'm not sure I mentioned last time uh, or highlighted. He puts on the court John Marshall, makes John Marshall chief justice. That's his best, that's the best thing that he does actually post-1776 or at least post-1780. He helps draft the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. And John Marshall was actually an opponent of the Sedition Act. So um, even though he was a Federalist, even though he was an ally of, of Adams, even though Adams will uh, later ask John Marshall to be his Secretary of State and eventually Chief Justice of the United States, he's making Secretary of State, he's making Chief Justice, a guy, a Federalist, who actually opposed the Sedition Act, and good for John Marshall, and good for Adams for picking John Marshall, even though everything else that Adams did um, that we talked about last week was Fakakta. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, that the, that the pardon of uh, Debs occurred in the Jeffersonian tradition. Um, but of course, Jefferson came to office and the a tradition already existed regarding pardons uh, set by, I, I suppose, Washington. Sure, um, but... but Jefferson was not to a contradict what you're saying, no. but but to prepare for my question, which is, you know, wh we really haven't talked about Washington's pardons. What was the attitude of the nation? You know, how did Washington interpret the pardon power? What was the status of the pardon power as Jefferson uh, took office? So um, remember, one of our biggest, one of my biggest criticisms of Adams is that. Forget whether the Sedition Act is constitutional. He picked ridiculous fact patterns to prosecute people with, just for very tame criticism of the administration that you have to allow in a democracy. So he picked ridiculous cases to prosecute. He prosecuted them to the hilt, and he never pardoned anyone. Okay. 
Now, by contra- in, in the Sedition Act controversy, he did pardon someone in a case called Fry's Rebellion against the advice of his um, cabinet. That's um, uh, uh, John Adams. Um, and Thomas Jefferson actually tells a story where the, cad- the, uh, the um, uh, cabinet was opposed to Adams on certain things, and, and Adams threw his wig to the ground and trampled it you know, that, in, in a bit of a tantrum. But... Um, so Adams did pardon someone in a death case, but in no sedition case did Adams do it, and that was part of his mistake. Washington did pardon people, and in a death case, indeed, um, he pardoned a couple of people in connection with the Whiskey Rebellion. After getting their conviction from a position of supreme strength, he pardoned people, but he pardoned them as kind of a pure act of mercy, almost, you know, almost British-style sovereign grace. Jefferson's is a slight, so that's what Jefferson inherits, the tradition. Marshall, excuse me, um, Washington pardoning a a person who's convicted, a couple of people convicted of treason um, and sparing them their lives. Adams sparing the life of someone else in a treason case, Fry's Rebellion. So Whiskey Rebellion, Fry's Rebellion. What Jefferson does is he takes that a step further and he pardons people openly on constitutional grounds, not as an act of mercy, but because I, Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, think this law is null and void. And executive review in uh, Jefferson style is not so different than judicial review, John Marshall style. If the judge thinks that a law is unconstitutional, the judge disregards it. If the president thinks a criminal law is unconstitutional, he should disregard it, and he disregarded it using the pardon power. So that's the the extra element. Now, one final thing. In doing that, Jefferson is building on a Washingtonian precedent, not a pardon precedent, but a veto precedent. Jefferson doesn't veto any bills because he's, he's got Congress in the palm of his hand. He doesn't need to. He's, um, he controls Congress functionally through his uh, party. Adams doesn't veto any bills. Washington did veto two bills, and one of them he vetoed openly on constitutional grounds. So I don't know of any pardon that Washington issued on constitutional grounds, but he does veto a bill on constitutional grounds. Jefferson doesn't veto on constitutional grounds, but the pardons in the Sedition Act were openly on constitutional grounds. So it's something new in the constitutional world at that time. Um, which is not to say that it wasn't contemplated by the founders that this would be a legitimate basis for a pardon. The easiest case for a pardon, if you think that... Because if you think that the law is unconstitutional in some deep sense, they're innocent. Maybe not factually, but deeper, legally. They did nothing that's, properly speaking, criminal. So how was it received by the public? Jefferson's re-elected, and he's on Mount Rushmore. Um, and when he leaves, his hand-picked successor is elected and indeed re-elected. And when that guy leaves, his hand-picked successor, who's also actually Jefferson's protege, this would be James Matt, uh, Monroe, um, is elected and re-elected. So, so Jefferson is the founder of a political dynasty. So he wins and wins again. His Secretary of State, hand-picked protege, James Madison, wins and wins again. Madison's protege and Secretary of State, who is also Jefferson's, Monroe, wins and wins again. Um, and then you come to John Quincy Adams, who's a little complicated because he's actually, although the son of John Adams, he's also 
um, in, the, in the cabinet, the, the, the hand-picked protege of James Monroe. He, um, uh, and, and then you get all the way to Andrew Jackson, and Andrew Jackson rebuilds Jefferson's party. So Jefferson really is um, the father, so to speak, of a political dynasty that will basically be the dominant political force in America, presidentially, and in other ways as well, all the way up to Lincoln. Great. And it begins by running against the Sedition Act, although quietly, um, because you don't want to be prosecuted under it. And then, once you're elected, keeping your constitutional word and openly pardoning everyone uh, and not prosecuting your own enemies openly under a new federal sedition law or the federal common law of crimes, which you rightly said doesn't exist, you being Thomas Jefferson. So, so it, it ends well for Jefferson. So that's a lot of discussion for three pages. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I think it brings up the point that, uh, you know, as, as you, the reader, um, you know, read this book, uh, you, uh, you should think of your own questions, and this podcast will still be there, and we'd be happy to uh, put them on. And speaking of things to look forward to in future podcasts, here's a word from a good friend. Hi, I'm Bob Woodward uh, from the Washington Post and teaching uh, a journalism seminar at Yale, and I am looking forward to appearing on America's Constitution, uh, the podcast with Akil and Andy, who are going to interrogate me and uh, they have asked me to appear under oath and I am consulting with counsel on whether I should do that. And needless to say, Akil and I are very excitedly looking forward to that. So why don't we continue? Once in power, Jefferson and his successor, Madison, quietly abandoned several other elements of their earlier oppositional politics that were constitutionally unsound. On various constitutional issues other than speech, they became Hamiltonians in practice, but never admitted it. The carriage taxes that Madison and his fellow Virginians had repeatedly denounced as unconstitutional, even as late as 1799, continued in operation during the first year of Jefferson's presidency. In marked contradistinction to Sedition Act pardons, Jefferson issued no pardons to carriage tax cheats. In the spring of 1802, Jeffersonians in Congress provided for the repeal of the carriage tax, but made a point to preserve liability for past taxes due, implicitly conceding the constitutionality of such taxes and the correctness of the unanimous Hylton case. Hylton was a case in which the Supreme Court sided with Hamilton and against Madison and Jefferson. Jefferson signed the 1802 bill into law just as Washington had signed the original carriage tax bill into law in reliance on Hamilton. In 1813, a Congress dominated by Jeffersonians actually resurrected a carriage tax in a bill quietly signed by President Madison. Emphasize quietly here. He, he's changed his stripes, but he doesn't want to admit that he's flip-flopped and that Hamilton was right all along on taxation. A similar pattern unfolded in connection with Hamilton's bank. 
1792, Jefferson and Madison had traded unhinged letters contemplating a Virginia death penalty for central bank clerks. But once in power, Jefferson enforced the national bank law as a law of undoubted validity, as had Washington, as advised, of course, by Hamilton. On President Madison's watch, his congressional allies allowed the bank's statutory charter to lapse in 1811. But then, in the War of 1812, the absence of a central bank did indeed cause serious fiscal and military embarrassments, just as Hamilton had predicted. In 1814, invading British forces torched parts of the White House and burned much of the capital to the ground. In 1816, a sheepish President Madison signed a new bank bill into law. When the constitutional issue reached the Supreme Court in the famous 1819 case of McCulloch v. Maryland, the court, in a unanimous opinion by John Marshall that echoed Hamilton's 1791 opinion letter to Washington at every turn, ruled that of course Congress could create a national bank. The court's opinion made mincemeat of Madison's and Jefferson's 1791 arguments and twice called attention to the constitutional and policy about face that the Jeffersonians had recently executed on that issue. Of the seven jurists who participated in McCullough, two had been appointed by Adams, three by Jefferson, and two by Madison. In short, on key issues, Jefferson, Madison, and their Virginia protege, James Monroe, who succeeded Madison, were more Hamiltonian than they cared to admit. Some artists at the time captured this truth when they placed Madison and Monroe in poses that brought to mind John Trumbull's famous 1792 painting of Hamilton at high tide. Um, and in our um, uh, uh, website, um, akilamar.com, um, we'll post those um, uh, pictures so that uh, our audience can see for themselves uh, certain similarities uh, between um, Hamilton and, on the one hand and Madison and Monroe on the other, apart from the Sedition Act issue. So um, if you were going to read these, uh, these pictures, let's assume that our, our listeners are now, now looking at them. Mm -hmm. what, would you, what would you say about them? Um, that maybe this is just a common pose, um, but but the, uh, um, the uh, you'll see that the um, Hamilton uh, painting, which is a very famous painting by John Trumbull of Hamilton, puts Hamilton in a certain pose, emphasizing his right hand. He's a writer, um, and uh, and what's in, and and this is a very famous painting of Hamilton. Maybe is this a classic pose? Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a hoot that uh, the people, that later artists end up putting Madison and Monroe in an almost identical pose. And I think the artist, at least, the artists who did these other two of Madison and Monroe are clearly aware of the Hamilton precursor. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just hallucinating. Um, art historians in the audience can, can, you know, and this is kind of, you know, our podcast creates a crowdsourcing of sorts. You know, maybe folks who know a lot more than I can weigh in on that. You know, in the, in the uh, portrait of Monroe, um, the uh, paper that he's got there, it looks like it might be a map, yes. um, is overflowing the table 
which is something that you noted in the picture of Washington, that he had a map that was overflowing the table, um, you know, quite a bit. Well, since you're here, you know, Andy, you, you drove all the way up from Princeton just to hang out with me. And, and I, I always look forward to, you know, I, the podcast because it means that Andy's going to come over and we can have a slumber party. And it's, this, <laughs> it's like I'm, you know, back in 10th grade, but, but it's very cool to have you up here. But um, Andy, I will show you after the podcast that this picture of James Monroe, which is a very classic one, is one I first encountered when I was seven years old and got a book on presents which, has, which had a lot of, of, of pictures in it. It's a very famous painting of Monroe, and it, it's the first time um, that I ever um, laid sight on, on James Monroe. Because remember, this is pre-internet. I got this book when I was seven years old and had stories about all the presents. And here I am, I'm 62, and I'm still basically obsessed by all these stories about all the presidents and still looking at presidential pictures. So um, you mentioned the Hylton case and the McCulloch case. Without getting into them, you know, at this point, I should just mention that it, it might have seemed like it was out of nowhere, but that's actually discussed um, at length in the in the book. Correct. Um, and carriage taxes are important in the, in the Hylton case. Huge. And if you're an Al, if you're a Lin Manuel Miranda fan, um, you know a lot about Hamilton. He's not in this series because he's not a president. Um, but there's a whole chapter on Hamilton, and the Hylton case is a big part of that chapter. It's the only Supreme Court case that Alexander Hamilton argues. He's a great lawyer, and he wins it unanimously. And if, in order to pay for all sorts of things that America needs to pay for, if we end up adopting, uh, if Congress does, a wealth tax of a certain sort to impose an annual tax on the wealthiest Americans, um, if we end up doing that, there's going to be a debate, a constitutional debate, about that wealth tax. A lot of Republicans are going to say it's unconstitutional, uh, and it's going to reach the Supreme Court, um, and it may be decided by a narrow margin of five to four, and I believe that the things that I have in the book about uh, Alexander Hamilton's ideas about taxation could be the decisive issues in uh, a, a possible future case about the constitutionality of the wealth tax. So Hamilton paid a lot of attention to taxation. He thought about a lot. There are seven Federalist papers that he wrote about taxation. He, you know, when he's a little boy, he dreams of armies. He plays with ar soldiers and armies. Um, and But you can't have armies. You can't have soldiers without taxes and banks. Hamilton understands all of that and... And I want the reader to as well. So there's a whole chapter on Hamilton, and you can't write a chapter on Hamilton without talking about banks and taxes. Great. So why don't we get back to the, uh, to the reading? Jefferson's self-proclaimed Revolution of 1800 was thus, at least in some measure, a matter of style more than substance. The Federalists had too often presented themselves as haughty and aristocratic, not sufficiently in touch with common folk, especially Westerners, those who lacked formal education, and those who worked with their hands. This stylistic failure haunted Federalists even when they truly were more egalitarian than their opponents. In the carriage tax debate, Hamilton openly favored a luxury tax that would soak, or at least splash, the rich, while in private correspondence, Madison opposed the tax precisely because he saw it as a threat to wealth itself, especially landed wealth. 
Adams was a farmer's son, and Hamilton had risen from the lowest rungs of the social order. Neither man was a slaveholder, and Hamilton had solid anti-slavery credentials. By contrast, Madison and Jefferson lorded over hundreds of slaves and never freed any substantial number except for Sally Hemings and her children, a special case. Jefferson sold slaves throughout his life, both to pay debts and to punish disobedience. Madison, too, sold slaves for his own financial convenience. But in the 1790s, these two brilliant Virginia blue bloods began to master the democratic art of self-presentation. Whereas Hamilton, a proud peacock, a spirited little animal, that's a quote, strutted in public and flaunted his fancy clothes, silk gloves, and silver buckled shoes, perhaps because he had so painfully lacked finery in his deprived Dickensian childhood, Madison almost always wore drab black. Madison was a master of camouflage, adept at making himself an inconspicuous target. Jefferson was a political genius sartorially, as is evident from a simple comparison of two famous paintings of him that show not so much the revolution of 1800 as the stylistic redo, the fashion remake of 1800. Once again, we're going to put these paintings um, up on the podcast for our audience. Um, but I'm going to describe them enough so that even if you don't um, have a computer screen open in front of you, um, you, can, you can hear the difference even if you can't see it. But, but if you have a moment, uh, dear reader, uh, dear audience, please do see it. Mather Brown's painting captured Jefferson in London in 1786, several years before the diplomat returned to America. Behold the true American aristocrat, powdered and wigged, bedecked in lace and frills, seated alongside elegant art and not directly engaging the viewer. His hand is fair and elegant, even dainty. Rembrandt Peale's 1800 painting, by contrast, is of an older man, a man vying for America's presidency, who has cleverly learned how to present himself to an increasingly and proudly democratic society. No more wig, powder, lace, frills, or art. He fixes the viewer with his gaze, directly and democratically. There's even a faint hint of a smile as he sees us. He's one of us, plain, simple, honest, direct, and thus we can trust him. Or at least that is what he wants us to think. Jefferson relentlessly attacked his political foes as advocates of American monarchy and aristocracy. As with much of Jefferson's writing, the charge was rhetorically brilliant, but intellectually lazy. Perhaps these words, monarchy and aristocracy, fairly describe some of Adams's mid-career musings and broodings, but they did not honestly describe Hamilton, who did favor elite and meritocratic government for America, but not hereditary rule, the most objectionable feature of monarchy and aristocracy. Early on at Philadelphia, Hamilton did have a kind word for the hereditary nature of the British monarchy. However, the constitutional plan that he ultimately endorsed for America had no hint of hereditary power, even as it did feature long terms of office. By contrast, 
Jefferson was in virtually every way himself a true hereditary monarch ruling over others on his private mountain. He was a Virginia Randolph, his father's first son, born in wedlock and on high, destined by that high birth to eventually lord over hundreds of slaves born to serve him. None of Hamilton's sons or sons-in-law would go on to political glory, though two sons did serve as presidentially commissioned U.S. attorneys. Jefferson, conversely, was two for two in transferring power to the next white and legitimate generation. He sired no white legitimate sons, but one son-in-law served as Virginia governor, as had he, and the other as U.S. senator in a chamber over which he had presided as vice president. Jefferson's closest friend and lifelong ally, James Madison, who likewise brilliantly railed against Hamiltonian monarchism, was himself a monarch cut from the same cloth as Jefferson. He, too, was a firstborn Virginia lord who, by dint of his high birth, inherited countless slaves, dying with more than a hundred and never freeing any of them. Humans treated far worse than George III generally treated his own royal subjects. Jefferson was comfortable playing the Democrat when his social inferiors knew their place and deferred to him. Hamilton irked him, in part, because the brash and low-born upstart did not yield to the Virginia grandee. Jefferson's mask slipped most tellingly when trying to hide his duplicity in the Freneau affair in the teeth of Hamiltonian exposés. Um, and I talk about the Freneau affair earlier in the book. This is a quote from, from Jefferson, who is fuming that he's basically been, been exposed by, by Hamilton. Quote, I will not suffer my retirement to be clouded by the slanders of a man whose history, from the moment at which history can stoop to notice him, is a tissue of machinations against the liberty of the country that has not only received him and given him bread, but heaped its honors upon his head. Unquote. Translation. The audacity of this arriviste, this lowlife, this, 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 this bastard who does not know his place. Jefferson is not really generally remembered this way, is he? <laughs> He's great at PR, ain't he? Yeah, I mean, even in his inaugural, um, he talked about unity. There are no Federalists. There are no... Uh, Republicans, I forget. What we are exactly. all Federalists, right. we are all Republicans. Right, exactly so. Um, and then doesn't really proceed to, to govern that way, does he? Well, um, he does cut taxes and cut the military and um, stop and, and, and bury the Sedition Act. And those are all great and epic things that are on message given um, his early platform. But in a bunch of other things, um, he's going to govern as a Hamiltonian. He's going to make his peace with the bank. He's going to accept carriage taxes. Um, he's going to actually wield national and presidential power, um, I would say, you know, well and effectively, but in a Hamiltonian fashion, for example, in acquiring Louisiana and not amending the Constitution to permit that acquisition. And, and, uh, and so, so in certain ways, he governs as a proper Hamiltonian, and I say hooray because on certain things like the bank and uh, like carriage taxes uh, and like the permissibility of acquiring territory for national security, I think 
The Hamiltonian position was right all along. And why was it right all along? Because it was the Washingtonian position also. Because the Constitution was Washington's Constitution, and Washington is siding with Hamilton on all these things. Um, and, and if the Constitution was designed by and for George Washington, and I think it was, and that was our episode, um, uh, uh, that was our podcast a couple of episodes back, if it's a Washingtonian Constitution, then whenever Hamilton is basically channeling Washington, um, Hamilton is quite likely to be right. And it's not just that Hamilton supports a bank. Washington signs the bank law. It's not just that Hamilton supports a carriage tax. Washington signs the carriage tax law. It's not just that Hamilton believes in national security. So does Washington. And they both believe in territorial acquisition for national security purposes. And back to departmentalism, if George Washington thought the bank bill was unconstitutional, he should have vetoed it. If George Washington thought the carriage tax bill was unconstitutional, he should have vetoed it. He didn't, and he didn't. He didn't think it was unconstitutional, and he didn't veto it. He vetoed two bills, one on constitutional grounds, but having nothing to do with what we've been talking about. It was actually a bill about congressional apportionment um, and, and rounding error in how you apportion seats to Congress. Um, and the second one was a national security measure, um, uh, and he just thought the c Congress's law didn't quite create the proper uh, force structure for national security. So, you know, you're critical of Jefferson um, in terms of his, um, his private life, uh, his life as a slave owner, slaveholder, and so forth. Um, you're critical of him in his misdirected rhetoric, portraying himself in one way and... and uh, perhaps behaving in another, but you're, you praise him in terms of his uh, actions as president. Indeed. So there's, so there's a dichotomy here between the private and the public Jefferson, but does the private Jefferson really matter in the, in the scheme of things? Well, it's not just private versus public, it's just things are mixed. I'm sure there were many aspects of his private life that were admirable. Um, and there were some parts of his public life that I like and other parts that I um, don't. Um, so I'm going to try to call an honest strike zone. And, uh, and, and I didn't start out um, with a particular agenda or axe to grind. You know, Andy, we keep talking about how we're, you know, you and I are friends, um, but we met relatively late in life. It's been very exciting for me. So you didn't know me back when we were students at Yale College, even though we overlapped. If we had been students at Yale College and we had, you know, shared thoughts about our lives and, you know, and what we want for our, our, our lives, if you, if you had asked me back then, I would have said, Andy, if I'm ever lucky enough to, to have a son, I'm going to name him Jefferson. Because okay. that's actually how I started out. And I've changed my mind on Jefferson because I've learned things. And, and, if you t and if I see new facts, I'll change my, my mind the, in the, the other direction. Um, if you would ask me, you know, if we had met as students, I would have said, oh, Alexander Hamilton, he's just, in, you know, um, uh, an aristocrat um, favoring the wealthy or something. Now, because Lin-Manuel Miranda hadn't done his, his, his uh, musical and Ron Chernow hadn't written his book, Alexander Hamilton, yeah, he marries well, but the idea that he's an aristocrat is kind of preposterous given how low-born he is. And, and I look at him now and I say, 
that's Barack Obama. You know, that's Abe Lincoln. That's Bill Clinton. That's Joe Biden. That's, you know, Gerald Ford. That's only in America. That's someone, you know, and, and um, who's born in the bottom half and, and actually Hamilton may be even way below the mm-hmm. bottom half and who rises to the top because of his, his talent, his, his brains, his drive, but also his intense love of America. So... You know, I am a little hard on Jefferson, and part of the reason I am is he was so mean to Hamilton, and I've come, and he betrayed Washington. Um, in all sorts of ways, he was not loyal to Washington. And I'm a Washington man because Washington is the Constitution's man, and that was what the podcast was um, two episodes ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, uh, and also Jefferson does hold... You know, these crazy opinions from time to time, like you mentioned about the death penalty for bank <laughs> clerks and, you know, these, these absurd things. But, of course, you know, he's portrayed by some biographers as a guy who would, you know, just was crazy in his writings and would try every idea out. But when it came down to it, in terms of what he actually did, that, uh, that he was okay. And, and I think that is true. I think some of his ideas were outlandish and daft. He was sort of utopian. He was faddish. You would Today, truthfully, a word that isn't a completely preposterous word to describe Jefferson's writings would be woke. But actually, when it turns uh, in actual governance, um, he's um, more wise than woke in general, and that's in part because he listens to people and he's advised by um, people who are a little less purely idealistic and a little more hard-headed. The alliance between Jefferson and Madison is actually a, a, a powerful one, and, and Madison has a bit of a sobering effect on the, um, uh, the air-headed, um, um, uh, uh, too fanciful, utopian, theoretical uh, Jefferson. Uh, and um, that's, again, one thing that Adams didn't have. Adams stood alone except for Abigail. Uh, Washington had Hamilton. Jefferson had Madison. And the book explains some of these, these teams. You know, just like, truthfully... I think this podcast is is teamwork because I don't know anything about all the the fancy electronic equipment you're 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 using. I didn't even know what a podcast is actually until you started to explain it to me about a year ago. So um, so you bring some things and I bring some things to the the collaboration and and uh, and and Adams wasn't as good at that and Jefferson was better at that. And yes, some of it you could say is hypocrisy. But some of it, you could say, oh, he actually listens when people, his advisors, push back against him and saying, well, that's that's very nice in theory, but but you're present now, and and that's not really proper and practical. Well, it's interesting that you say woke because, you know, I'm not sure that Jefferson today could survive a lot of his pronouncements. You yes. know, in other words, he, he says these crazy things, and if that would be the end of him. But on the other hand, as you say, maybe he, you know, he lives to. To uh, politically to to uh, act another day and and then the Louisiana Purchase happens or you know and so forth. Here's a uh, a private line that Hamilton writes to Jay when he's trying to get Jay to actually change the election rules because otherwise Jefferson's going to be elected president. So it's 
it's very similar to what Republicans were proposing. Gee, we're going to lose um, if we let the voters of Pennsylvania decide. So let's have the Pennsylvania legislature pick. Um, now, you can't do that after the election, but it would have been lawful for the Pennsylvania legislature to have done that before if it changed the, the, the law. Well, Hamilton is urging Jay says, let's change the law because it, um, if, it's, uh, if it's the new legislature that's going to be um, picking, um, they're going to pick uh, Jefferson, but why don't we pick uh, um, the uh, electors now? And it's, it's lawful to do. It's, it's sharp dealing, but it's lawful. And Jay, in the end, doesn't do it. He thinks it would be dishonorable. But here's Hamilton's line in the letter to Jay. He describes Jefferson as, quote, um, a fanatic in politics and an atheist in religion. Like this guy's a French revolutionary, Jacobin, a Robespierre crazy man. And if you look at just some of the tweets, some of the, the writings, it is a little out there, but Jefferson governs um, in a much more sober way. Great. Shall we move on to the next? Great. So this is actually the last bit in the Jefferson chapter, um, or the first Jefferson chapter, but um, and then we'll in. Uh, uh, but there's going to be a, just a little bit more about um, about someone else that I'm going to talk about um, also before the end of uh, 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 this podcast. Um, even though um, Jefferson's the star of the show. After Jefferson's triumphant election in 1800 to 1801 discredited and dispirited Federalists seemed to many contemporary observers a spent force in America. Washington was dead. This colossus of the 18th century never lived to see the 19th. Adams could not be trusted to safeguard America's most basic freedom, the freedom of expression, and in any event, he was too old to vie for the presidency in any future election. Thanks to Jefferson's paid journalistic assassin, James Callender, the Maria Reynolds scandal had badly tarnished Hamilton's political standing. And then, in 1804, Jefferson's former running mate, Aaron Burr, made any possible Hamiltonian comeback impossible by killing the Federalist hero in a duel. In 1801, John Jay left the political scene altogether, declining to stand for a third term as New York's governor and spurning the opportunity to return to the United States Supreme Court as Chief Justice. He would spend the remainder of his life in quiet retirement. Years earlier, the cerebral Federalist Justice James Wilson had died in debt and disgrace. Okay, so Washington's out, Adams is out, Hamilton's out, Jay's out, Wilson's out. Who then remained to hold aloft the Federalist flame? the great nationalist vision of Washington and Hamilton. One man above all others. Although emphatically Hamiltonian and Washingtonian in his constitutional principles, he otherwise bore an astonishing resemblance to Jefferson. He, too, was a hero in the Revolutionary War, albeit with his sword and not his pen. He was also a respected Virginia blue blood, both his and Jefferson's mothers were Randolph's, first cousins once removed, in fact. Like Jefferson, he had studied at William and Mary and read law under the legendary George Witt, 
and had then, go on, and had then gone on to serve as a diplomat in France and a Secretary of State. He was another brilliant writer who had a great personal political touch. He knew how to lubricate serious face-to-face conversations with good wine for his guests, and he was every bit as handsome, charming, winning, and publicly unpretentious as Jefferson himself. The two men even had similar romantic tastes. The wife of this man who took up the Federalist torch was the daughter of a Virginia beauty who many years earlier had declined Jefferson's marriage proposal. Like Jefferson, and crucially unlike most other Federalists, this statesman had not discredited himself in the Sedition Act controversy. In fact, he had denounced the act publicly in a shrewd October 1798 statement published under his own name. Quote, Had I been in Congress when the Alien Sedition Acts passed, I should certainly have opposed them. They are calculated to create unnecessarily discontents and jealousies at a time when our very existence as a nation may depend on our union. Unquote. Over the next few weeks, more than 20 newspapers across the continent reprinted this passage. And speaking of newspapers, Jefferson's Hamiltonian kinsmen had a keen appreciation of printers and readers and of the importance of public opinion. Like Jefferson, he knew how to place cleverly anonymous political pieces in the press as needed. More generally, he, like Jefferson, was a popular politician who knew how to sing the people's praises to the people themselves. At critical political moments, he too proudly described himself as a true, quote, Democrat, unquote. And like Jefferson, in mid-1801, he stood atop one of America's three branches of government. In fact, in that capacity, he was the man who personally administered the presidential oath of office to Jefferson. Some modern scholars have speculated that this fraught moment of oath administration was supercharged by the fact that in the weeks leading up to the inauguration, the statesman administering the oath had secretly angled to grab the presidency from Jefferson and for himself, an acute legal maneuver. If so, exactly how much did Jefferson know of his rival's machinations? Machinations every bit as clever as Jefferson's own political plots over the years. In the end, Jefferson's Hamiltonian kinsman and rival would both outlive the third president and surpass him as a constitutional expounder and keeper of the constitutional flame. In addition to this Hamiltonian's many other gifts of talent, temperament, and technique, he had one enormous epistemic advantage over the self-proclaimed author of the Declaration of Independence. John Marshall had been an integral part of the epical constitutional conversation in 1788, and Thomas Jefferson had not. You think that Marshall's participation in that constitutional conversation accounted for the different path he took than Jefferson? Yeah. Um, I think that early in the lives of most of the great founders, something extraordinary happened, and it imprinted them. And that's a story I I tell later in the book about each one. Um, But in a nutshell... um, George Washington's early story is one of military service, so he really gets unionism in a big way and understands the need for a strong 
union. And um, uh, John Marshall uh, is also early on affected by his national military experience, um, but he's not on the public stage in a big way as Washington is as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. So Marshall's first big moment sort of on a political stage is supporting Virginia's ratification of the Constitution in 1788. So he's a founder. He's helping to make the Constitution uh, a real thing. Uh, we the people do ordain and establish the Constitution. He's part of that ordainment and establishment. He's not drafting it at Philadelphia. He's helping get it ratified, and it passes by the narrowest of margins in Virginia, and he's one of the two or three leading uh, advocates of the Constitution in the Virginia ratifying conventions. There's Edmund Randolph, there's uh, James Madison, there's um, John Marshall, and there's one other guy, I would say, George Nicholas. So he's one of the four leading people getting the Constitution ratified by the narrowest of margins in Virginia. And, and he's doing that by persuading his fellow Virginians. So he's boning up on the Constitution. He's paying attention to it. He's part of the ratification process. He's thinking about it a lot. Meanwhile, Thomas Jefferson is not only not in the room, he's not in the, in the state. He's not in the country. He's not in the continent. He's off in France doing other stuff. So he doesn't feel a sense of ownership of the Constitution personally the way John Marshall does. So, and I think that puts him at a disadvantage because he, um, and, the, and that put John Adams at a disadvantage too. I, I said, you know, he's a Rip Van Winkle because um, he slept through the Constitution, the act of Constitution, and the same is true for Jefferson. Um, so, yeah, John Marshall gets it in a way that um, Thomas Jefferson doesn't. And John Marshall is really, really proud of that moment. It's, it's his first moment on the, the public stage. And, wow, he shines. Now, the judiciary, even the Supreme Court at that time, was not uh, viewed as it is today in terms of uh, level of prestige and so forth. Isn't that true? I mean, uh, you know, one might even think that Marshall's appointment to Chief Justice might sort of be a sidelining. I mean, after all, he was Secretary of State, which you've mentioned before as a pathway to the presidency. So was this somehow a strategic sidelining of him? And if so, why would he take it? Well, that's, that's the last and final set of readings, Andy, so um, stay tuned. Okay. In his prime, John Marshall was potential presidential timber every bit as much as Jefferson. We today miss this fact because we forget how much the relationship between America's chief executive and America's chief justice has changed over the centuries. Ours is a world not merely of separation of powers, but also of separation of branches, separation of career ladders, and separation of governmental personas. Early in life, a supremely ambitious prodigy nowadays must choose whether she hopes one day to be president or chief justice. The career path forks early, and she must pick a branch and a persona, either political or judicial. 
For example, one cannot be a judge these days without going to law school. One cannot be a Supreme Court justice or chief justice without excelling in college and law school. But presidents need not have law degrees or college Latin honors for that matter. Since the end of World War II, only five out of 14 American presidents, Nixon, Ford, Clinton, Obama, and Biden, have been lawyers. Once our modern prodigy picks a role and career ladder, she must ascend that ladder. She can move up within the judiciary or within politics, but she cannot generally jump from one ladder to another. Presidents and presidential aspirants do not become Supreme Court justices today. By contrast, Supreme Court justices and those seriously in contention for the court do not today become presidents. In the past 75 years, no justice has left the bench for elective politics. No current justice came from the world of elective politics, and eight of the nine current justices were sitting federal appellate judges when appointed to the Supreme Court. The ninth, Elena Kagan, held a highly judicialized position as the executive branch lawyer most responsible for Supreme Court litigation. Things were entirely different in the founding era. Law schools as such did not exist, and judges were sometimes legal amateurs. On the other side of the ledger, many of America's early chief executives were indeed chief magistrates of sorts, chief law officers, if you will. In the nation's first half century, every president save two had practiced law at some point in his career. One exception was James Madison, who had read a good deal about law, even though he had not technically read law as a legal apprentice. The other was, of course, Washington, who surrounded himself with legal talent. Three of his four main advisors, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Edmund Randolph, were lawyers. At the founding, the positions of chief executive and chief justice were kindred offices. The presidency operated as a magistracy of sorts. In Jefferson's Tart 1804 letter to Abigail Adams, he described his pardon power as quasi-judicial. He had a legal obligation as the nation's chief executive magistrate to correct the circuit judge's manifest constitutional error in the Sedition Act cases, much as if he were a chief justice. And here's the quote. You, that is Abigail Adams, seem to think it devolved on the judges to decide on the validity of the sedition law. But nothing in the Constitution has given them a right to decide for the executive more than to the executive to decide for them. Both magistracies are equally independent in the sphere of action assigned to them. The judges, believing the law constitutional, had a right to pass a sentence of fine and imprisonment because that power was placed in their hands by the Constitution. But the executive, believing the law to be unconstitutional, was bound, note, not just permitted, but bound, to remit the execution of it, because that power had been confided to him by the Constitution. That instrument meant that its coordinate branches should be checks on each other. That's the end of the quote. And by the way, that's classic departmentalism, just judges deciding cases in their sphere, but presidents deciding constitutional issues in their sphere, including constitutional issues, when exercising the pardon power, for example, or the veto power. And earlier Thomas, the ubiquitous Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts, epitomized the especially close links between the positions of chief judge and chief executive. Over the course of Hutchinson's career, 
you moved from the first chiefdom to the second. Other men who held both positions, either simultaneously or seriatim, in the late colonial or early independence period, including, included New Hampshire's um, Message Weir, Josiah Bartlett, and Jeremiah Smith, Rhode Island's Stephen Hopkins, Samuel Ward, William Green, James Fenner, and Isaac Wilbur, Connecticut's Jonathan Trumbull, New York's John Jay, Pennsylvania's Thomas McKean, and South Carolina's John Rutledge. A similar pattern marked the early federal system. The two men who came in third and fourth in the first presidential election, that is, the two men right behind Washington and Adams, were Jay and Rutledge, respectively. These two presidential runners-up later became America's first two chief justices, and in the same order, Jay first, as their 1789 electoral vote finish. In the mid-1790s, Jay left the nation's chief judicial position to serve as his state's chief executive, only be invited to serve again as U.S. Chief Justice at the end of the Adams administration. Like Jay, Rutledge shuttled between governments and branches, from state chief justice to the U.S. Supreme Court as associate justice, to state chief justice, to federal chief justice. In 1796, Jay and Oliver Ellsworth, America's first ex-chief justice and its sitting chief justice, respectively, between them received 16 electoral votes for president. Over the ensuing century and a half, other U.S. chief justices would further illuminate the tight link, a link that no longer exists between America's top executive and judicial jobs. Salmon P. Chase, named Chief Justice in 1864 by Abraham Lincoln, was a former state chief executive and presidential contender who once on the court still yearned to be president. Charles Evans Hughes, who became Chief Justice in 1930, was another former governor and presidential candidate. In 1916, he'd come within a whisker of winning the presidency against Woodrow Wilson. Earl Warren, appointed Chief Justice in 1953, was yet another former governor and had been his party's nominee in 1948 for the vice presidency. Most striking of all, William Howard Taft served as both president and chief justice, seriatim. In light of all this, it's not outlandish to imagine an alternative universe featuring President John Marshall or presidential nominee John Marshall. Surely Marshall himself gave the idea more than passing thought. So he's very Jeffersonian. Marshall's impeccable credentials for the chief executive chair went beyond his status as occupant of the chief judicial chair. Like Washington, Hamilton, Burr, Clinton, and Monroe, Marshall had served as an officer in the Continental Army. Like Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, he was a Virginian with strong ties to the West and good friends in the North. Like most of early America's apex politicians, he was media savvy and a gifted newspaper writer, skilled at the art of anonymous opinion pieces. Like Adams, Jefferson, Jay, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Elbridge Gerry, Madison's vice president, and the Pinckney brothers, perennial presidential and vice presidential candidates, he had experience as a top American diplomat in Europe. Like Jefferson, 
Madison, Monroe, and many presidents who would follow, he had served as Secretary of State. America was still a rising power amid larger and more established great powers, and the nation generally preferred candidates who had an informed vision of, the, of world affairs and or strong military experience. Marshall did more than just daydream about being president. In the weeks before Jefferson's inauguration, he made his move, explaining in an anonymous newspaper piece that the presidency should go to him, or at least that is what some scholars have concluded with considerable evidence to back them up. And by the way, that story about how Mar Marshall is plotting to basically steal the presidency from Jefferson in 1801 will be the subject, I hope, of another podcast episode. So stay tuned. So that's um, an answer to my question, of course. Um, I mean, do you think that uh, this change that you identify, that there's you know, little movement between the branches, do you think that that's, that that's a good thing? Um, uh, do you think it's, it's inevitable because of the growth of complexity of government, or do you think that it's perhaps an outcome of the politics of the court, um, where, you know, life, you know, life tenure, and so generally you want people to stay on the court till the, till, or they want to stay on till they die. I mean, do you think there should be some sort of reform, some of the court packing reforms that have been discussed might be relevant to this? Um, what do you think about that? So I wrote a piece on this, and uh, maybe we can upload it on the website. It was for the Atlantic magazine um, uh, several years ago, I think maybe uh, now many years ago, eight years ago, I think. It's called Clones on the Court. Uh, and I identify this phenomenon that there used to be all these p politicos um, uh, uh, who would become justices, you know, as late as um, Earl Warren and the chief justice position, but even um, after him, Senator Day O'Connor was uh, um, an elected politician. So I talk about how um, early justices were once and future politicians, and that uh, continued um, all the way to Senator Day O'Connor, and it's no more. Uh, the, the experience, again, eight of the nine current justices were sitting Federal Court of Appeals judges at the time of their appointment, and the ninth was a very judicialized executive officer, the Solicitor General of the United States. So in this piece, Clones on the Court in the Atlantic, I give you, the, the audience, the data, and then I have three or four or five possible explanations for why this is happening, um, specialization of labor, um, um, people who have passed the, the, the uh, Senate gauntlet of advice and consent once to get confirmed for a, the lower bench, are, they know the drill, they're more likely to, to pass the second time, they've already been vetted in, in, all, sorts of, um, uh, in all sorts of ways. So, so identify some of the possible reasons. I'm not sure that the court is better off so highly judicialized. Maybe it would be good to have um, one or two people from a different background, maybe a state judicial background, maybe the life of, of politics. So, Andy, let's, let's do two things. Let's put that piece up on the website, and maybe let's flag that for its own separate podcast down the line, because I think that's a, a good topic. 
Yeah, I could see how it uh, how it could, there could be a lot of complexity because really we're talking about and what you just said about uh, people bringing various ex- types of experience to the court. We're not talking about justices bringing doing something after they are justice. So, for example, John Marshall could theoretically have run for president after he was chief justice. And Simon P. Chase desperately yearns for the presidency, even while chief justice. And you and I are Lincoln men, and Lincoln saw that about Chase. He thought Chase was like one of the most impressive people he'd ever met. I think he said at one point, Chase is one and a half times larger than any other man I've met. Um, And Chase is a very great lawyer, and Lincoln is a great lawyer, and it takes one to know one. And he says, gee, Chase would be a really great chief justice if he just buckles down and focuses on the law and gives up this dream of his to be president. Lincoln knew his man. Um, Chase still wanted to be president, even as chief justice. Um, He ran, of course, against Lincoln for the presidency in 1860, um, he was one of the top three contenders, William Seward, Simon P. Chase. Abraham Lincoln really is in third place and kind of comes from behind. As Lincoln's sitting Secretary of the Treasury, you know, one of his top cabinet officers, Chase is still dreaming and scheming about the presidency, hoping maybe to push Lincoln off the ticket. And you know what they say about people who have the presidential bug. The only cure for, for that um, virus is is death itself, mm-hmm. um, and let's take um, our current president. He he got to the Senate at a preposterously young age. I think the, maybe the youngest senator in a century or something. And people who get to all senators or almost all of them dream of being president. And people who get to the Senate very young dream of being president. And he got that bug. You know, and, and he ran, and he lost, and he ran, in fact, a second time, I think, and he, and he, and he lost, and, and he ran a third time, and he won. So, um, Salmon P. Chase was like that. He ran for the presidency before he became Chief Justice, and he was still dreaming about it. Well, I think that this is something that to keep in mind when we think about uh, court reform, because um, in the current situation where justices have life, and life tenure, um, uh, and they're expected to serve essentially, you know, close to life tenure. Um, they are able to be to maintain their independence on the court, as we've said many times, and I'm sure we'll say so uh, in the future. On the other hand, if they're looking at a future where they may run for president, yeah. this can abridge this what most people consider a virtue yeah. among among the justices. And if you start to to abridge their term to 18 years or whatever. Um, Perhaps you're bringing this, uh, letting this pen, this genie out of the out of the bottle. Yeah. So we have we need to do another episode. Um, we'll talk about Hugo Black, who was a great ex senator who became a great one of the great justices of of the uh, century, even though um, he was more of a politician than a judge at the time of his ascension. We'll talk about um, William Douglas, who on the court he was a former politician, um, a cabinet officer, uh, uh, and but when he's on the court, he's dreaming and scheming of executive power. He came within a whisker of being FDR's running mate in 1944, and he would have been president um, instead of Harry Truman. Um, and even after that, he's thinking about a presidential run. So, yes, we will talk in some future podcast about justices 
um, who in American history have been once and future politicians, but not so much anymore. So more to look forward to. So uh, thank you to Everscholar for sponsoring the podcast today. Thank you, Akil. Thank you. Thank you.